Good morning, you early risers. I think we'll need to get ourselves going here and try to keep ourselves in time. This uh, clock uh, phone is uh, timing things in hundreds of a second, so (laughs) I'll try to keep from being distracted by that. Well, this morning, we're going, this is really part one of a two-part uh, set of talks, and we'll be covering the area largely of how do we sustain global workers. Uh, this session now will be two parts to that, um, two parts to part one, resilience and sustaining global workers, psychiatry's contribution. Uh, psychiatry would be a broader term because it may be a, a psychiatric nurse clinician, but how does that part of the medical field that deals with behavioral sciences uh, relate to to what we do. So um, I work with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Certainly they're a medical group, you know, and uh, they do Bible translation. They work around the world. Uh, there's probably 90-plus cultures and countries represented in the work that they do. Um, but increasingly, the work is done by mother tongue translators in Wycliffe and SIL, which is its partner organization, equips people to do that translation. But uh, you might wonder, well, how did a, a psychiatrist get into SIL? And other people wonder that too. I used to wonder, how did I get there? Though I always was impressed with SIL and what they did with Wycliffe and SIL. So I just want to talk a little bit about how I got into psychiatry. Um, went to medical school at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. My senior year there, that was started 1970, just a little while back, I went to an Urbana Missions Conference. Any of you familiar with the Urbana Missions Conference? Well, on New Year's Eve in 1970, Billy Graham was there. Uh, Billy Graham, John Stott, and Elizabeth Elliot were my heroes back then. The heroes we have changed because you don't see them anymore uh, in one sense, though you may have heard of Billy Graham's death more recently. But uh, they make a call at that point and say, do you want to make a commitment to full-time missions? And I answered that call. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we go along. But a verse that's been very helpful for for me has been... uh, in Philippians, Paul is talking about, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that was 1970. I didn't get to the mission field into, until 1993. That was 23 years later. If you are in missions, be patient. Uh, I'm not saying you need to be that patient, but uh, I kept looking, how does the Lord want to use me in what I'm doing? I anticipated a career in the traditional medical Missions, so prepared to doing that, uh, working with the Indian Health Service. I worked in both Arizona and Alaska and in Arizona on a reservation. And uh, I saw the huge mental health issues there with uh, alcoholism, domestic violence, suicide, family disruption. And it started to get me interested in the behavioral sciences. How do we begin to do that? I worked in Nome, Alaska. They had eight churches and eight bars. And... (laughs) 
And some of them were along the same front street in town. So, uh, but the Lord began to redirect me. But I really had no idea at that point how he would use psychiatry. Uh, But the issue of mental health issues goes way back, especially in modern uh, history of uh, missions. Uh, Carey, William Carey, who was often considered the father of modern missions. don't know how much you know of his history. It was some years ago that I began to learn that uh, he had some real struggles within his family. His wife, uh, his first wife, uh, was opposed to them going to the mission field. And I remember a, a mission, missionary doctor saying, if you want to go to the mission field, be sure if you're going to get married, marry the right person who has a similar interest. And she was very much against it. So Kerry decided he was going to go anyway, and he was going to take their son with them. Well, she finally relented and went with him. But it was a very challenging and difficult period. She became um, paranoid and delusional towards the end of her time there and eventually died, but her son died there as well. And that contributed to the precipitation of her uh, delusional situation. So if they had been going today, um, they would have probably been slowed down by a mission agency, but he was his own mission agency at that time. So how did SIL get involved, or Wycliffe get involved here? So we... We had a suicide of one of our missionaries, and that caught the attention of our leadership. What's going on? What do we need to be doing? How do we help take care of our people? So the wheels were set in motion to support a couple who were already in the organization. He was multi-functional. He was a lawyer. He was also a pastor and well-respected by the organization. He went and got training to do counseling. His wife did the same. And that was the beginning of what became Wycliffe's counseling department. So in the early years, most of the people who went into counseling were already Bible translators that gave them credentials, credibility with the organization. And that's a very important piece is how do you develop uh, credentials. So the I put the iceberg up here. You know that an iceberg is the majority of it. Eleven, nine, uh, ten tenths, ten elevenths of it is under the water, and that's the way God's created us. We're very uh, deeply made and complexly made, and sometimes we don't know all that's there. So this is just a little illustration, things that you already know. But underneath, there are often things that are latent or hidden, and they don't come out until there's a stressor that shows it up. I ran across this cartoon some years back, and I really like it because I think it sometimes fits the situation that we're in. And the cow upside down is just saying, here, really, I'm fine. And I want you to think about the tension between call and how you're doing, especially how you're doing with what's underneath the water line. Because people feel they've been called, they want to engage with the mission, and they feel that if I become a missionary... All these things will get taken care of if they're under the waterline there. So it's a mindset that people have, and it influences people at various places along the the lifespan of a missionary. 
So the acceptance of psychiatry as a mental health care as a legitimate or even helpful aspect of missionary support, it's come slowly. For example, in some sectors of the conservative, more conservative church from which many missionaries come, counseling and psychiatry have long uh, been viewed with some suspicion. Explanations for emotional suffering were seen as arising from spiritual causes and the remedy was found in spiritual resources. In some setting, emotional distress is seen as spiritual or moral weakness. Again, think about this issue of how do we present ourselves. We don't want to be seen as morally weak. In some cultures, an explanation of psychiatric symptoms focuses on the demonic. Um, And as the missions endeavor has globalized, with many more people coming for what we might call the global south, uh, Wycliffe has people working with them from over 90 countries. The challenges of meeting mental health needs across this is something that we're grappling with more and more. How do we address things in a culturally appropriate way from many places where uh, we don't really understand the culture well? So one of the things I... Uh, I've run across a fellow by the name of Warren Kinghorn. He's a psychiatrist and a theologian at Duke right now, and I really like the way he's able to phrase things. So we're created in God's image, and from a human's perspective, now one of the, this is one of the things he said, there's always an interplay of biology, one's personal constitution, and the culture in which one lives. And that's the depth of God's creation in us. I mean, it's wonderful. We're capable of wonderful things, but also fallen in the process. So, how do we provide care that's acceptable, relevant, and accessible? All of those things are challenges. Personal credibility Well, part of that is, do they understand where I'm coming from? And part of that is helped if you are on the mission field and you've gone through the same process, the same types of orientation. You've had to, uh, Wycliffe is a faith-based organization. You have to raise your own support. You have to go around on partnership development. Those are the kinds of things that many missions uh, have in uh, And you still have to do a lot of speaking. So that's part of the life of a missionary. So there's a shared experience with that. Uh, You go to the field. You live in the same kind of circumstances. Um, We were in Nairobi for 22 years, my wife and I. And some of you know, well, there was an embassy bombing there in 1998, I think it was. Uh, Westgate was a terrorist attack on a mall. Westgate was very close to where our kids went to school. Not that far from it. Um, and there was a one of the ch- uh, parents of uh, some of the, one of the children there was killed in that. So there's a very personal way these things can interact with you, and so you understand the same thing. But one of the things that even without that kind of experience, we're looking at some new models of how do we address care, sort of on a global level. We can't have people located everywhere. Uh, Spiritual credibility. Are you theologically grounded? 
One of the things that I was asked to do was to spend a, a year at CIU doing their um, uh, program there. They have a year-long program at the Columbia International University. That was very helpful, but it also gives you some credibility with people. They want to know, are you theologically grounded? How do you, your faith and practice get uh, integrated? So one of the things is to take the services to where people are. Um, we try to place people in strategic areas. You want to place them somewhere where there's a, a, a transportation hub so people can get to that. For East Africa, it was Nairobi. It's sometimes hard to find that, but um, we have people now in Thailand, the Philippines, Cameroon, and in Germany, and in a country that we can't talk about, uh, but they provide face-to-face -face and sometimes distance counseling. In the U.S. counseling, we have uh, people at three different places in Dallas, Waxhaw, North Carolina, and Orlando. Waxhaw is close to Charlotte. That's uh, where JARS is located, the Aviation and Technical Services part of that. So, obviously, the majority of our overseas staff don't have geographic proximity, but sometimes they can come there. Um, in our second session... Uh, later this morning, the uh, 9.30 session, uh, uh, Roger Brown and Dr. Roger Brown and Dr. Barney Davis will be looking at an overview of what kinds of things do we see, but also some of the new models that we're trying to think about. How do we make our resources accessible? So there is a process that happens along the way here. There's the application process. In the U.S., one of the challenges we run into now is the Americans with Disabilities Act. We can't use mental health issues as a way to exclude someone from employment. So they become members of Wycliffe before we're able to do some further assessment. One of the things we're working on doing better at is um, after employment, there's a health exam, examination, including attention to mental health, looking to identify areas of vulnerability. But we also want to look at what, where are they going and what are the requirements. And that's a place that we can put a clearer boundary. Do they have where they're going the things that they will need to help make them um, sustainable? Now, another program with, we do there at, uh, at JARS, it's a pre-field intercultural communications course. And in that, they really do a good job. It's a month-long kind of thing. And uh, they look at issues of spiritual vitality, relational maturity. One of the pieces there, impact awareness. Because one of the problems you have on the mission field is conflict. Are people aware of the impact that they have on others? When you're working with folks, the whole family's there, staying on the center, and part of the process is, is to observe. All the people who work in this intercultural communications course are, have been field-assigned missionaries, and they've had their own issues, and they are free to share those, and that's part of what we want. Remember back the cowl upside down, really, I'm fine. Well, that's what you want people to see, but what really is going on underneath? How do we get at that? Cultural sensitivity... You're often working in a cultural worldview that is quite different than your own. Um, the 3D Gospel talks about three, 
three, the three major ones, guilt, forgiveness, honor, shame, and power and fear. Um, and then life skill uh, hardiness, transitions, trauma in the past, and then um, MK issues. One of the things we really need to watch out, remember the upside-down cow event. I'm going to keep coming back to it. The kids have that as well. They realize sometimes that if I have trouble and my parents have to take care of me, maybe even go home, do I interrupt God's work? And that can be a tremendous pressure on them. So it's one of the things that's important to be aware of and to think about. And then assignment selection, as I talked about, where are people going? Are they going to be in a remote area? Is there medical care? Are they on medications? Do they need to continue those medications? Now, again, the upside-down cow may think, well, now I'm a missionary and I'm going to the field. I really don't need to take my medicines anymore. So they stop it before they go. That's a recipe for disaster in most cases. Um, So we want to look at these things and try to uh, address them in a helpful way with folks. And part of how do you how do you decrease stigma? Well, I'll just that's a little bit later here. But uh, so we want to recognize the field realities. We want people to be aware of where they're going, what's there. There's some kinds of many countries don't carry some of the medications people might be on. If they are on medications, most people aren't. But if they are, can you get help for that? Um, so medical, spiritual uh, resources, um, specialized services for children. Sometimes your kids are struggling academically. There may be other issues that come up, and we'll talk more about that, I think, in the next session. Not too long ago, I was asked by one of our field people who screens people, well, what what do you think about somebody who comes with a history of bipolar disorder? And we sort of went through and looked at what are some red flags of that disorder that may say, well, you really can't go here, you might go there, or we might say, you really shouldn't go at all. How recently have they been hospitalized? What was the break, the bipolar break, when they were hyper-like? We had someone on the field go into a manic episode, a full manic episode, some years back, and it was very difficult once you're out there. So... Uh, on-field support, what's available, what's not. Uh, often the kinds of things we do, we often are doing <clears throat> some training of our staff, listening skills, knowing when to get help for people. Your HR department really needs help in being trained in those. Debriefing and mentoring leaders coming along beside them. One of the real challenges is if you have some a conflict and generally, when I've been called to address things where there's an intractable conflict that relates to some personality kinds of issues where people are unable, they're rigid, and they're locked in, and they're right. And it leads to an intractable situation. Oh, the old uh, 80-20 uh, idea is uh, 20% of the people take 80% of your administrative time. And these kinds of conflicts can really uh, eat things up for you as a leader. Crisis intervention and debriefing. I mean, we've just seen many, many kinds of things. Uh, We did a debriefing at the school after the Westgate uh, attack, 
uh, in Nairobi where one of the parents was killed. And we tried to come alongside of people in the midst of those kind of circumstances. What if you need specialized care and it's not available? So when resources aren't available or insufficient, they may have to come home. And often in what I've seen is maybe one of the hardest things that your missionary goes through <coughs> is having to address that the fact that they may need to go home. And part of the issue, the upside-down cow here, your life is much more transparent. And if you have to come home because of that, how do you address that with your family, your church, your supporters? And it, really one of the things to me that provides resilience is having a safe place for you to be able to talk about these things, especially among your supporters, your home church. So there's a lot of losses involved in having to come home early. Um, Long-held calling, what was meaningful work for you, disruption of your schooling for your kids, coming back in the middle of a term, trying to figure out where they go to school, How do you pick that up? So the issue of shame is really strong here. But if you've got a safe place to go, that's what's very, very helpful. So Wycliffe has an in-house counseling service. Uh, We've had people at Tumani Counseling Center. Roger Brown, who will be talking to you in our 9.30 9.30 session will be, uh, was one of the originators of that. He and I worked together there for 22 years. Roger, you've recently come back. You've been there over close to 30 years, I guess. So, so there are brick-and-mortar facilities, 290's one cornerstone in the well in Chiang Mai, Olive Tree in Turkey. These are places, they're sort of hubs where people can go. So how do we decrease stigma? Well, part of it is by transparency. Part of the intercultural, uh, cross-cultural learning that we have people do, again, I mentioned it's done by missionaries who've been through that. They've had their own difficulties. There's a help if you're being able to be transparent. They talk about what's happened and what they've needed to do. And we hope our members coming to the field will have the same kind of thing. It's helpful if you have a pastor who's had issues, to be able to talk about that within your home church. Again, that creates a, a, a more um, inviting circumstance for you to return. And I'll just uh, say briefly here, one thing that came was a surprise along the way, just a, a, a real blessing in one sense to be part of, it was in 1999 that... Um, some pastors in Eastern DRC came to one of our uh, translators and said, how do we help our people who have gone through sort of endless cycles of war? Uh, And at that time, one of my colleagues was a psychiatric nurse clinician. She had studied in special area and cross-cultural issues. She was a mass unit nurse. She knew PTSD personally. And she was one of the ones who helped uh, bring these materials out. One was an anthropologist translator. Um, third one was in scripture use. 
And having this material, what's an integration of scripture? What does scripture say about suffering? What does scripture say about grief, etc.? And looking, so looking at scripture and bringing some psychological principles to bear. Well, I'm going to stop there. Are there any questions that I might address for you? Yes. Yes, yeah, they were all written by SIL people in the beginning. The American Bible Society has come along to help pick up because it's just exploded. So where can we find those? Uh, you can get them online with the American Bible Society. But I would encourage you to wait maybe about four or five months. We're coming out with a revised version. Uh, the one that's here is a 2016 version. We keep adding new things. One of the exciting pieces of that has been uh, we've been asked and then are working on, and it's pretty close to be done, to do a military version. And Ukraine has been eager to get that. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, uh, written exams can be helpful. Uh, one of the things we can't do because of the uh, American Disabilities Act is we can't do an MMPI in the U.S. And the MMPI is rather good at picking up some personality kinds of trends or issues. But you want to watch because the, there's sort of a, there's an assessment component to that time they spend a month at JARS and uh, people are just, you know, they want to know how do you handle Cross-cultural settings, you're asked to be in a cross-cultural setting in a church, etc. So the interpersonal interaction, are you a team player? Do you need to be out front? What, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Un, especially, are you aware of those? So they look at that fairly carefully, and, and they actually do a good job with that. Uh, we have a counseling center there, so some may be referred to that and say, you know, it might be good for you to check this out. With the idea, are you ready to go? Are there things you need to grow in before you get there? You had two questions. Yeah, that's, that's a, a critical piece, and actually I didn't emphasize that enough or at all when I was talking earlier. Confidentiality is very important. Our organization understands that. There are times that our administration knows we have information that they need, and we don't tell them. Now, there are situations when you get on the field, if there's a child abuse situation going on, then we will uh, take appropriate steps to manage that. Any other questions? Yes. When you first started talking, you said something about, we'll talk about how to become credentials. Is that coming next hour? Did you say something like that? Credentials. I don't know if it was like, let's say, because I'm not a doctor or anything, how to get there. Oh. No, not particularly, but uh, I mean, you need to, there are secular credentials that you need to have. We require all of our counselors to be licensed somewhere, but then that gets more challenging when you're looking globally because some countries don't license counselors. How do we bring them in? How do we have a sense that they're going to do a good job? 
because sometimes counselors go into counseling because they have problems. And in psychiatry. One more question, then we need to stop. This question about your materials and if you have on the screen. Yeah. Yes, no, that's a good question. There is a specific training that's offered in many places, but uh, it, um, we ask people to take that training because before they do it. It's a model which talks, you, we start with a story, but it's interactive. It's an adult learning model, which works very well cross-culturally. And you, get, you have a story which can be crafted to meet their particular situation. Can I just ask you a quick follow-up? Has that been translated to multiple languages now as well? It's probably in over 150 different languages at this point. So it's amazing. I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, gobsmacked. (laughs) I see what's happened with it. I didn't think it was going to work when we first started. But the Lord has taken and used it in many different places. I have a couple of copies here if somebody wants to take a look at it later, but I think we need to do a crossover now. Sam, where are you? There's one over here. Appreciate your coming, since you don't even know my last name, Uh, if you go by the program anyway. But anyway, so I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm Sam Thielman. I'm uh, a psychiatrist, and I've actually known Dick for quite a long time since my residency, but our career paths diverged somewhat. And um, so I was in private practice until mid-career, and then I joined the U.S. Department of State, and I was a psychiatrist with the Department of State for 16 years and was the director of mental health services for a while. And uh, I won't go into all the ins and outs of uh, how I got into that position, but I'm retired from that position now, and I I, uh, have been very interested in supporting um, Christian work overseas, uh, using some of the things I learned in uh, my work with the State Department. So when I first joined the State Department, I, I, I was in my uh, 40s, and I went to Washington, and I interviewed, and they said I'd done a good job and that I would be accepted, and that was great. And I wondered, where would I go? Would it be, I had a friend who'd done this work, and he'd been in London, and I know, knew they had a place in Paris, And um, they had one in Venice, Italy. Italy. And so I was casting about, and they said, well, we have a position in Nairobi, Kenya that's opened up. And I said, well, that would be, that's okay. um, I'd never been to sub-Saharan Africa. And um, I uh, 
I knew Dick there. That was good. I knew they had giraffes, and uh, I was really tired of private practice, so I thought I'd talk to Sarah and my wife. And thought it would work out, and it did. And so, um, so we went over there. But as I thought, I, I was in the interview, and I said, "Well, wasn't that where there was a bombing last year? This is in 1999." On, and they said, "Well, yes, uh, there was, and that would be a good part of your job over there. You'd be doing that." And I was like, "Well, whatever." Well, anyway, I got over there, and it was a very big deal. <clears throat> so this is uh, this is the U.S. Embassy on August 7, 1998, when that bombing occurred. And there were 213 injuries and uh, 213 deaths and 5,000 injuries, and a large part of the embassy staff was killed or injured. And uh, so they had reconstituted in a warehouse outside of Nairobi. And um, actually, on the following, the bombing was on a Friday. They regrouped on a Monday, and they did that. So 16 months later, I arrived, and um, I was told that the you know, I was welcome, but they'd really asked for somebody who wasn't a new hire. They wanted a, an expert in PTSD. Well, I, I knew a lot about PTSD from my residency, but I wasn't really a world expert or anything, but I learned on the job. So um, so I did, I dealt with that. Then I realized that they had kind of uh, lumped a lot of the less desirable posts in Africa into this new region that I was now covering. So I was also covering uh, U.S. embassies in uh, in not Tanzania, but Rwanda, uh, Burundi, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo Brazzaville, Sudan, Eritrea, and Ethiopia. Okay, and but you know, in a way, it was—I mean—it's very interesting because these are not tourist locations, and these are not places people normally go. And as I got into it, I realized that lots of these people were. Uh, traumatized, had been through traumas. And in fact, even the Kenyans in Nairobi would say, well, that bombing was bad, you know, the employees of the embassy, but in fact, we have a lot of trauma around here. And for me, that wasn't even the worst, that wasn't the worst thing that's happened. Also, there was a huge effort at setting up a Western style counseling approach in Nairobi. So, um, USAID put a lot of money into setting up counselors and training counselors and so on. And a lot of times the Kenyans didn't really get the idea because they weren't really used to counseling. And they wanted school fees for their children. Okay, And so they said, well, you're putting all this money in this. Could we just have school fees? Because the breadwinner in our house has been killed. And really, if we had that, uh, things would, um, you know, would probably get a lot better. So, no, you need counseling. You're dealing with the the trauma of this bombing, and so on. And so as we got in, we looked at the drug list of drugs that were being paid for by our response to the bombing, which included not just mental health care for people who have been affected, Kenyans at large, but also the medical needs. And the number one expense on drugs was on Viagra. Okay, because a lot of people were having PTSD and the men were suffering from impotence, but they weren't really thinking in psychological terms. So these, this got my mind to thinking about stuff and how are we, how are we going to deliver mental health care to uh, people who, you know, who are in the, the developing world and also to our diplomats and their dependents who are functioning in this uh, area. 
So then I uh, later went back to Washington. We, I won't dwell on all this, but we invaded Iraq, and I, I was first chief of crisis response and head of mental health services. This is a C-130 going in uh, to Iraq to assess the resources at Coalition Provisional Authority. Here's me in Iraq by the Tigris, and I'll just flip through these real quick. Uh, back in Nairobi, um, I mean, I was covering Rwanda. This is a picture from... Uh, the Hotel Mule de Colleen, which is uh, in Kigali, where there's a movie about this, Hotel Rwanda, but there were, you know, uh, some Tutsis were sheltered there from the genocide. But uh, I began to realize that, like, well, wait, a tenth of the population has been killed here in a hundred days. And I hadn't even really thought about it very much. You know, back in 2000, people weren't thinking about this as much. Well, as I went through this, uh, and learning about these things and thinking about them, and I, I have sort of an academic bent, so I was writing some about them too. And um, I realized that there's some people who go through these traumatic events, and it's just the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their entire lives. So they've, um, you can't talk to them more for, for more than 10 minutes, or, and they'll start telling you about what happened and all the injustices and so on. And then there were a lot of people who kind of pulled back to normal or close to normal and kind of carried on. Then there were some people who would tell you that's like, that was a turning point for me in a good way. Like I learned stuff through that that I would never have learned otherwise. And, uh, and they would have this other trajectory. When I finished up, and I, I, after Nairobi, we were there for two tours, total five and a half years, uh, in Washington for three years, then some European assignments, and I was finishing up, and a friend at the State Department called me and said, well, you know, I would like you to come back and be our senior advisor on resilience here at the Foreign Service Institute. And I, frankly, at the time, I had never even heard the term resilience. So... Um, I told him, I don't know anything about that. I'm not sure I even believe in what you're talking about. And he said, um, you know, you do. You know about this, and you just don't know that you know. And I want you to come back and help. So I thought, he was a good friend of mine, and I thought I'll do it. Well, I did it. And I got back, and I, I realized that a lot of what I was uh, seeing in terms of these trajectories was related to resilience. So my thought for us today is... As those of you who are looking to go into work overseas for, you know, for the kingdom and for people who are overseas working, this bears a lot of thought, especially early career. Because if you will give attention to what I hope to tell you a little about today, um, you may really help things to go better with the Lord's help. So... Um, let me just, there, here are three useful concepts for you. They're related. The first is hardiness. Hardiness is uh, what's used a lot of times by the military for selection, for special forces and so on. There's a, a, a scale that's put together by Paul Bartone that is a really short scale that measures hardiness, but this sort of thing is used. And it refers to uh, a sense of control over your circumstances, a commitment to what you're doing, and an ability to tolerate change. And so this is, uh, this is hardiness. Grit is a second concept. It's a psychological concept. It's, there's a book about it by Angela Duckworth called um, Grit. 
and uh, there's a YouTube video. And grit refers to passion, uh, passion and persistence. Okay, so people who who have grit and a, and a lot of leaders of non-governmental organizations and I presume mission organizations, there have been studies of this, uh, seem to, to have grit as one of their big characteristics. I do a lot of consulting with Samaritan's Purse, and I think Franklin Graham would be a guy who has grit. You know, um, so it's just passionate about what you're doing and, uh, and you're persistent regardless. So resilience is a related but different concept. And resilience refers to the ability to bounce back after traumas and the ability to thrive under pressure. So there are two components to the definition. And we think of resilience as a battery. Okay, there's a battery analogy because resilience is both a state and a trait. So if you, if you look this up, again, I thought initially this is sort of a fluffy concept, but it's not really that fluffy. There are really hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, of articles on resilience in the medical literature. Um, and so it, it's, it's something you're born with, but it's also something that waxes and wanes. So you can't really help what you're born with. You know, this is one of these, you know, it's like heart disease or something. you got these factors that aren't really modifiable. But there's some things you can modify. And there's some very uh, serious thinking about what, you can do in terms of training to help yourself be more uh, resilient. So I like to tie what I think about to, this, to the scriptures as best I can. And, you know, I'm a lay person like probably most of you. I'm not, uh, not theologically uh, trained except I went to Wheaton. They made me to take Bible courses there, which I enjoyed. But um, anyway, but there's this uh, verse in Ephesians where Paul says, Be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might. So I do think we're called upon, and I'll show you some more evidence of that in a little bit, to do our bit, you know, with God's help to, um, to um, build our capacity to bounce back. Um, low resilience, so if you get into the kind of low resilience frame of mind, we generally say this is, has the picture, it looks a lot like stress, really, but uh, anxiety, isolation, clingy, Frequent minor illnesses, moody. So when you're in the state of mind, forgetfulness, sense of hopelessness, you're not going to be bouncing back so well. You're not going to be sort of pushing forward. Um, why do we want to attend to resilience? Why should we think about our own resilience and helping others? Because if we don't, and if we neglect the mental health portion of, uh, you know, of, of People doing healthcare work overseas, uh, you're going to have find that people will have substance abuse. They're going to be people who are getting angry a lot. They're going to be uh, suspicious, uh, depressed, and maybe even have this thing uh, that Dick touched on uh, almost called moral injury, where you're in the middle of something, and this is not uncommon in medical work, um, and um, you do something you think you shouldn't have done, and it's sort of a, it's like a crisis situation to boot. So you'd normally get PTSD anyway, maybe, and then you have this other part, well, I didn't really do the right thing there, did I? And so that's moral injury, and that, that, make, that can be very difficult for people to deal with and make the PTSD harder. So th- these are things that uh, make it important to pay attention to the mental health side and to the resilient side of uh, work in healthcare and missions. Um, 
So this is sort of this verse that I use as my uh, as a, for our uh, member care uh, group over at um, at Samaritan's Purse, uh, which is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So I view this as like a calling to us to comfort those with the comfort we've been comforted with by God. That's in Second Corinthians. And if you read Second Corinthians closely, you'll see that's sort of a book about it comfort in some ways. So, obviously, resilience is, um, is a, you know, it's a complex and big topic, but you can summarize a lot of it. So, this is from this book that I commend to you by uh, Stephen Southwick and Dennis Charney. They are both researchers who were at Yale. Uh, Charney's now the dean of the medical school at uh, Mount Sinai. But anyway, they worked a lot in their work with their psychiatrists. They worked with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Vietnam vets, and they did a lot of work with um, actually uh, POWs who had uh, been held by the North Vietnamese uh, during the Vietnam War. And they also studied um, people who'd been injured, people who'd been through various crises, and they were really looking for the people who were in this last group that I mentioned at first, the people who were doing well, who had this post-traumatic growth trajectory, and they, they identified ten factors that characterize the resilient people. And so these are the ten factors that I think we can work on if, uh, if we want to increase our own uh, resilience. So the first was that resilient people had sturdy role models. So there was somebody who they looked up to, and I'm not talking about mentors so much as I'm talking about like people's lives that, that inspired them. So I, I really like Eric Little a lot. I mean, he's, nobody talks about him much currently. But if you've ever um, you know, seen this movie, Chariots of Fire, from the 1980s, it won an Academy Award. But um, anyway, it's the life of Eric Little. He was a Scottish, uh, he was known for winning the you know, 400-meter race at the Paris Olympics in 1916 or something. But he was also this really devout Christian who wouldn't compromise on Sunday running, which really seems antique currently. But um, anyway, and then he went on to be a missionary to China, not a clergy person. He was a teacher, actually, in China. And then he died in an internment camp, Japanese internment camp in China in his 40s. He, there's a recent biography of him by Duncan Hamilton, uh, who's a sports writer in the U.K. It's really great. It shows what a resilient person he is. So that's a sturdy role model that I like. There's uh, others that I have, too. Of course, as you probably too, but identifying sturdy role models, people who were resilient were cognitively and emotionally flexible. So Dick referred to the kind of uh, leaders maybe or people he would run into who kind of had this um, rigid thinking, this black and white thinking. Resilient people have, don't have that. Okay, They have a flexible way of looking at things. And there's some... Um, Christian traits that go along with this. Um, so, um, for example, forgiveness. There's a lot of work on forgiveness in the psychology literature. Um, and um, that's, uh, that's a trait of cognitive flexibility, the ability to kind of see things another way and forgive. Gratitude represents cognitive flexibility also. So the ability to be grateful in difficult circumstances. And um, humor is a characteristic of cognitive flexibility. So the ability to kind of be in a dark circumstance and 
you know, sort of see the funny side. I know doctors are often accused of having a dark sense of humor. Uh, you know, it's like, I, you know, how can you make fun of that? That's really not nice. But um, the truth is, you get into this sort of thing, and you make a little joke, and you can move on. So that's what we mean by cognitive flexibility. Um, people who are resilient face their fears. So they weren't, they just said, I'm going to go ahead and do it. You know, with God's help, if we're Christians, okay, but they were able to face their fears. They also were realistically optimistic. So they were people who tended not to be the gloomy people, but the people who tried to look on the, you know, the look for a way out. So th- this, res- this optimism is a two-edged sword, and um, it can also, uh, like this Pollyanna optimism, like it's all, you know, it's like, ah, oh, it'll work out, don't worry. It, that's like, no. That, that's actually discouraging to people because it's not true. But what they're talking about here is this sort of thing, well, I think I see a way. I'm not going to be overwhelmed by the dark clouds. They were able to kind of push forward. Uh, people who were resilient sought social support. So they weren't loners, okay? They were people who would reach out to others when they were in trouble and, and get help. They were people who had an inner moral compass, So there was something in them that kind of pushed them on. Even if everybody else is going a different way, they they had a a compass that was pointing north. They were people who drew from religious and spiritual resources. So now this is in Charney and Southwick's book. If you'll get it, it's published by Cambridge University Press. It's in its second edition. And you know, you often people in the you know often in medical centers and so when they talk about spirituality, they're talking about mindfulness or you know, yoga or whatever. But, you know, my friend Carol Koenig at Duke, who writes on a lot of this stuff, he points out that when most of the religion research is about, um, it's Baptists. Yes, I say 10 minutes. Okay. Yes, it's Baptists. Okay, it's just like people talking about God really helped me through this. Or, you know, this is like, it's not people who've meditated all day. And Anyway, don't get me talking on this too long, but that is the case. Okay, Um People who were resilient attended to their physical and um, brain fitness, okay? So they were intentional about this. They were exercising. They were reading. They were working puzzles. You know, I worked a lot alongside um, uh, CIA people in the U.S. embassies. And one of the CIA psychiatrists told me about the special forces and how these guys, he was, we were just chatting one day, and, and um, he was saying, you know, they will pick up any kind of little puzzle or you know, whatever, just anything, and kind of learn it in depth, because that might become useful to them one day. So that's what we're talking about, brain fitness, okay? People who were resilient took responsibility for their own emotional well-being. So they weren't always looking for others to fix their problem. They were, with social support, with maturity, they're taking responsibility for themselves. And they're people who had an ability to identify meaning and purpose in the circumstances around them. So they didn't just view the world as the, you know, themselves as the flotsam and jetsam of the universe, stardust talking to stardust, you know. No. This is, they were people who had a purpose. Okay. Well, I'm looking at this. Now, I'm learning this entirely in a secular context. I mean, I'm learning this at the State Department. Nobody I'm working with identifies themselves as a Christian in my little team which called themselves the Lord's Resilience Army. Okay, so which is a pretty sick joke right there. But anyway, so um, anyway, but I'm looking at this like, I 
this is this isn't putting Bible verses to psychology. Like they've secularized a lot of things that I thought were Christian concepts. And so, uh, since I only have 30 minutes here, 25, um, I'll, I won't go into all the details. But as I, I was presenting this one time in Juba, because part of our job was to go, you know, we're incorporating this in the curriculum of the State Department, and then we're um, presenting it some overseas. And I was in South Sudan, which any of you who've worked there know these, these are people who are, there are a lot of Christians in South Sudan, and these, these were local staff at the U.S. Embassy in Juba, and they said, well, you know, um, for us, religion and spirituality is not number seven. Like, religion is number one. In fact, everything comes under religion. And I was thinking, you know, you're putting me to shame. You're exactly right. Okay, this is all under God. So this is, I've regifted the rainbow to myself. And I'm putting it on our slide here to indicate that everything is under God. So when I'm talking about resilience as a Christian, I don't mean just some sort of self-help thing that you do for yourself. We're doing this in Christ, okay? And if we had a little more time, we would show you some of the evidences here that um, that this is really tied into Scripture. But just to kind of point out um, a few of these, so um, for example, sturdy role model uh, from John, for I've set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. This is Jesus talking. And James, uh, in James 5, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So there are a lot, this is just a couple of verses, there are a lot of places where you could look in Scripture and realize we're told to look to others as examples and to be a godly example. And again, you can go through this and think about this, but I just commend this to you. One final thing I want to mention is that I looked as hard as I could, and I could not find the word resilience in the Bible. Okay? It may be in the message. I wasn't able to search that as well. Okay, but anyway, I don't think it's really in the Bible. Okay, so, um, but there is this other word uh, that relates, and this is endurance. Okay? And endurance is all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. <clears throat> and uh, the Greek word for endurance is, is upomone, okay? Um, my brother teaches Greek, and I was calling that hypomone, and he told me to cut it out because it sounded foolish, so I did. But anyway, um, and upomone is this word in in the New Testament and in ancient Greek that means it's a it reflects a heroism. It, it, it means courageous endurance. Okay, and remember, endurance. If you know about classical virtues, uh, endurance would be under the one is fortitude. You know, it's faith, hope, and love. Uh, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Those are the seven classical virtues, and endurance is under fortitude. Okay, that's like pressing on despite whatever's going on. But this is from Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Energetic, if not successful, resistance. This is what upamone is. The calm acceptance of strokes of destiny. So this is so you don't necessarily succeed if you're enduring. You're just enduring. Okay. But you're enduring in the good, because good it's not virtuous to endure in something that's not good. That's evil, okay? And resilience is morally neutral. So you could be resilient and be bad. ISIS is resilient, okay? Uh, Luke 18, as for that, in the good soil, they are those who on hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with upamone, patience and patient endurance. 
So I'm going to come to the end here, although there's more. I'll close with this thing because this, this is a really important verse. Uh, this is from Psalm 145.13. And um, it just stuck out. I was reading. I, I love the Psalms and I, I read them a lot. And it says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So this is, this is the connection of endurance to God's kingdom. If you'll notice, this also is almost said verbatim by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. I think it's Daniel 5. When he came out of his insanity... And he said, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion, no matter how crazy the laws get, your dominion endures throughout all generations. So if we're working for the kingdom of God, we're working for a kingdom that is enduring. And it's worth something being resilient for. So, quickly, sometimes people say, well, you've said all this. What should we really do? So here are the two quick things you can do to make yourself feel better. Exercise. And do something good for somebody else. That's altruistic coping, and that really helps. And I think I'll take some questions now. So, any questions? Yes. Um, resilience is not just something you're born with. If you look at those traits from charity, uh, coping, optimism, all those different things, are, is that something you're born with? You learn those things. Right. Your families, the context for running. Every one of those things are things that we want to teach our children, and if we're healthy, the children learn that. And, and so it's, it's classic biopsychosocial psychiatry, what you're born with and what happens to you. So, so I love what, everything you said, but resilience is part of our context. And uh, if you don't raise kids right, you're not resilient, no matter what they're born with, no matter what their genes are. Well said from a child psychiatrist. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I work in an emergency room. Yes. So there's a lot of the factors that you're describing and increasing. Part of my question is, how do you validate the fact that somebody says, this is a sucky day, <laughs> and at the same time, you kind of press forward with this kind of uh, optimism that you're talking about, Oh, yeah, well, the optimism one is that that is one that bears thinking through, because you're right, you know, and if and you can also get really drugged down, you know, if everyone you're working around is in a non, is in a non-resilient, you know, frame of mind, and you're trying to, you know, bear up, I mean, this is not just something, and there, like I said, there are a lot of components to this, this is not something that's simply an individual thing, there, you know, you have to have an organizational, you know, kind of uh uh, an organizationally resilient setting in order for people to work optimally and so on. So my yeah. question is, how can I as a believer yeah. I think you, I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, sort of impose my solutions on you per se, but I would just say maybe you just press on and do your good job and be praying internally, you know, Lord, <laughs> help me, you know, help me to, you know, be your person in this difficult circumstance. Because a lot of, a lot of your secular colleagues don't want to hear it, you know, so, but if you're just doing the good job and, and not gossiping along or saying how bad the administration is or how could they do this, you know, then you're, you know, that may be the best you could do under a single circumstance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's such a thing as, 
as, uh, you know, there's vicarious traumatization, which you may know about. There's also vicarious resilience. If you get resilient people together, they can pull up a non-resilient person. Uh, yes? Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. What do you recommend for team leaders when you have brand new team members who maybe don't have some of the innate resilience factors and yet they're, they're in real room? Well, I think or, organizationally you can try to culturally, you know, do a culturally appropriate thing. But a lot of stuff lends itself to instruction. Okay, so you don't, I mean, this is all kind of preventive care. So there are, and, you know, it, obviously some people are going to have emotional problems and so on. But you might incorporate an educational component, you know, that your, your group was involved in and bring some of these things to mind so that they could work, you know, they'd know, well, it's out there, I could work on this if I wanted to or something. I mean, I hope that fits your question. Yes. Um, my name is Victor. I'm from Congo. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, um, now you're feeling worse. Yeah, people uh, lost everything, almost everything. Mm-hmm. So how do we, how can we do to rebuild that resilience? How can you, well, again, I think the first thing is to learn about it. Okay, so get some of the materials on it, and learn, and especially this Southwick and Charney book is a great starting point. There are a lot of books on it, but that's a particular good one. And then um, study up on it some, and yeah, then it does lend itself to training. So I, without getting into too much detail, that's what I would suggest. I need to stop now because the, the time is being called, but thank you very much for your attention.